Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, William H. Macy, really made his name with a standout performance in the movie Fargo. But he's backed that up with a career playing modest, economical, subtle characters. That is, until he was cast as Frank Gallagher on the Showtime series Shameless. It's been a caution doing this thing. I'm a Lutheran kid from Western Maryland, and I read these scripts, and I think, Mother of God, what are you talking about? I'm not... The stuff they have my character do. Today, today, I, I had two scenes. I bed down these two women. They're my age, and, and they're large. And um, it was, it's a weird-ass way to make a living. It's Bullseye. Coming up, I'll talk about improv with Brian Husky and Matt Walsh. Part of the show was introducing this act that we claim is really good, but then when we come on stage, we're completely terrible. So part of the bit was we had uh, my father came out as J.D. Salinger when he was alive (laughs) to an audience of 2,000 people in Central Park and says, Hi, I'm J.D. Salinger. Uh, I don't come out of my house for anything except for this next act. After the show, people wanted his autograph. Wow. I'm not, he, he signed like five autographs. I'm, and he's like, I'm signing his J.D. Salinger. Go ahead. That's great. Later, William H. Macy joins me to offer a rebuttal to actors who want to make up their own lines. I come from the different school, which is uh, make it look like improv, but say the words. I've seen a lot of actors. They say, why would I say that? And I always say, that's the wrong question. You do say that. Look at the script. There it is. That's what you say. So start there. Plus, stand-up comedy from Baron Vaughn, music from Chicano Batman, and I'll tell you why a corny, completely predictable movie called Drumline is, in fact, completely worth your while. That's all coming up on a Bullseye taped live on stage at the Masonic Lodge at Hollywood Forever Cemetery in Los Angeles. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. You probably know Brian Husky from his roles on Children's Hospital, Another Period, Veep, and a bunch of other comedy series and films over the last 15 years or so. Matt Walsh is one of the founding members of the Upright Citizens Brigade, alongside Matt Besser, Amy Poehler, and Ian Roberts. He currently stars as Press Secretary Mike McClintock on HBO's Veep. In the new improvised film A Better You, Husky stars as Dr. Ron Knight, a therapist and self-help guru who specializes in his own form of hypnotherapy. Walsh directed the film. The pair wrote it together. Here's a clip of Matt and Brian. Dr. Ron's trying out a therapeutic technique on his patient, Patrick. I just want to stop smoking and time out because today we're going to try a a new approach that I, I do a lot. I do. And... And it's it's called um, uh, emotional mirroring, and no 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 you you don't lean back you need to be up. Um, 
I think it's important for you to sort of see the state you're in. So you're feeling anxious. I'm yeah, I'm off too. I can't quit. Yeah. Oh, I'm furious. I'm so mad. Do you see? Yes. 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 Yes, you do. Yes, you see it. Yes. Yeah. This is no way for me to live my life. Not. No. Come on. Okay. 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 I'm mad. Come on. I want to. Maybe that's the wrong emotion. I mean, what else? If you if you don't get work, you're gonna be sad. Maybe you feel sad. Sad like that, that's baby sad. <laughs> Please welcome Brian and Matt to the stage. Brian Husky and Matt Walsh. Did you guys know I wore a wig in that? <laughs> oh my god, I just realized that. Yeah. Brian, I wasn't gonna bring up the wig, but um, <laughs> it really is. So, for folks who are listening at home, they can't see the fact that you are substantially bald. Well, okay, Fert, this is what I'll say about it. This yeah. is elective, okay? <laughs> uh, this is a choice I've made. I'm going with the look. I mean, it's really castable. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I will be the same age for the next 30 years if I keep my skin intact. So. <laughs> I'm good. Oh, wait, you can keep your skin intact? Yeah. If you can keep from getting flayed? <laughs> yeah, just keep it on my body, you yeah. know? You know, that's it? That's it. That's, a, that's, that's the your big trick goal. to aging? <laughs> keep it. your skin on your body? Yeah. Guys, if you don't want to get old, keep your skin on your body. That's one for you. Brian, I, okay, so that wig that your character wears in the film is, yeah. a, is a wig that your character is wearing within the narrative of the film. Yes. Uh, it's not just an attempt to make y you look like you have more hair. It's supposed to look bad. Yes. It, we, yeah. The film is basically an 86-minute wig joke. Yeah. <laughs> so there's a market for that. Yeah. I know <laughs> people out here will dig it. A big build-up to it. And uh, there's a payoff at the end of the movie. A real. A real but it's a symbol of, twist. in a corny way, it's a symbol of him sort of uh, pretending to be something he's not. So that's why the wig is so cheesy and... Uh, he gets real with his life towards the end of the story. Yeah. The wig is the level of denial that he's in. Have you... Yeah. Brian, have you ever worn fake hair for a role that where the hair wasn't a joke? Um, no. I think every time it's been like, huh, he's wearing a toupee that gets ripped off his head. <laughs> because bald is funny, guys. Uh, no, I never have. Really? No. That's interesting. No. Have you, Matt? Sure, a million times. <laughs> Not to brag, but yeah. I've had like $10 million worth of wigs on my head over my lifetime. I mean, some pretty sweet wigs. Again, it's elective, like so garbage yeah. you were wearing. I mean, yeah. And this beard is fake, too. No. Like, I just do not... Oh, really? Yeah. I don't oh, have, have no hair at all. Eyebrows are fake, too? All this. I have alopecia. Like, all, all gone. So even the hair around the sides, of the, like the crown of your head and stuff? Yeah, that's fake, too. Wow. Yeah. It's really nice, though. It's good, right? Is it surgical or is it temporary? Um, 
as long as my skin stays on my body, it's... <laughs> It buckles in, doesn't it? Yeah. It just clicks in. Yeah, it just clicks right in my head. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to Brian Husky and Matt Walsh at our live show in L.A.'s Masonic Lodge at the Hollywood Forever Cemetery. The pair co-wrote the new movie A Better You, in which Husky stars and which Walsh directed. You can find A Better You on VOD now. Matt, this is the second film that you've directed that is entirely improvised. Yes. Um... I guess, you know, to put it simply, why? Like, what, what do you feel like you get out of improvisation that you wouldn't get out Can of Can I answer? Script? Laziness. 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 Improvisers are lazy. Absolutely true. Um, I think because I know improv, I've been doing it for many, many years. Uh, I think it's a joy to be an actor inside an improv film, and I've done that many times. And I think... In an Aaron Sorkin story, everyone talks like Aaron Sorkin or a Woody Allen film. Everyone kind of talks like Woody. Uh, I love improv because it's completely varied and the delivery of the characters is just beautifully distinct. And it's affording people that freedom. To guarantee it's funny, we construct hopefully stories and scenarios where we tell someone, you're in the scene, you're a writer who loses jobs because she can't stop talking. So you give them hopefully a funny premise, so you guarantee it's funny. But the performance and the choice of words is the actors, you know, they, they choose how to do it. But this is very different from what people might think of when they think of an improv film. Yeah. Because I think people yeah. would, would tend to think of like Christopher Guest movies, yeah. which are very sketchy and broad. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And this is a pretty sincere movie. True. Absolutely true. It's a melon comedy, we call it. A melon it's a, it's a, I didn't coin it. Dromedy. It's a dromedy. Uh, Cromedy. Yeah. I think Brian and I like things that seem real. And I, my own pet peeve when I watch even scenes in movies that I know are improvised, my sort of pet peeve is this, it's usually a riff on masturbation or, you know, something stupid like that. Or you can tell they're improvising. I don't know how I can tell, but I can tell like they're improvising. So I like a tone that's closer to real and subtle. And uh, and the other benefit of improv is you discover wonderful things on set. Can you give me an example of something that you help me out here, Brian? Uh, what did we discover? I don't know if we discovered any huge plot lines or like storylines, but. Uh, I personally, uh, Aaron Hayes plays this patient that I. Uh, have a interest in and she me she i um and she i she, I, that's the that's the <laughs> correct I you, yeah. you know what she me at me she i um, is that an apple product she i the she i <laughs> but i was she did so much with she bites her nails you know she just uh has this nervous tick but aaron did such an amazing job of making herself even more kind of um, helpless to her own condition than, than my character was, that it was really interesting. Like, she made a really good choice of being lower status to me, but I found in, in for my character, it worked great because I would be attracted to that because I, I wouldn't want someone who is, like, more powerful or threatening. And I just thought that was such a smart, cool move that she made that I don't even know if she was a conscious thing, but it worked out well for our two characters. 
So that was an Oscar-winning moment <laughs> in the film. And a Pea- but we got a Peabody for that and a Pulitzer. Yep, yeah, and a Grammy. We really will, and a Grammy for that. And a Tony, hopefully we get the Tony. And a Webby. And a Webby. Fingers crossed. Fingers, Fingers crossed. crossed. And an npr Is there an npr I sweep them every year. <laughs> Congratulations. You should stack them on your desk. Yeah. Um, how, Matt, how, how long have you been improvising? Uh, 25-plus years. Swings. When was, the, when was the first time you improvised? I took a class when I was a, in my second senior year at Northern Illinois University <laughs> uh, at, a place, at a place called the Players' Workshop of Second City. So Second City didn't, didn't even have their own school, but they were affiliated. So I took it at a place in Chicago. So I would drive an hour and a half into the city and then go back out at night. Was it something that like made sense to you immediately or something that you... I think about four classes in, I had that sort of crack hit where you're addicted. There was a moment where I did a scene with someone I didn't know and we sort of were funny for you know a room full of 15 students for three minutes. And I've been chasing that high ever since. It's true. Yeah. But how does it feel when you are when you're improvising and it is going exactly right? I think there's an intuitive sort of shorthand that develops between the person you're doing the scene with. I think you trust that the choices you made will be caught. Uh, and you can also feel free to have half an idea. You don't need to own everything or come up with a complete idea. So that trust and that sort of willingness, I know I can say anything and Brian's going to catch me. Like, that's what's beautiful about improv. Yeah, I think that is. And you also, you know, a lot of times when you do a show, it might, if you do a two-person show, it's just those two people. But normally they're four or five or more. So if the show, Sometimes it, six. That's an interesting point I just made. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, even seven. Yeah. Seven. Guys, all my questions were just about what numbers How many? <laughs> uh, nine, nine, nine. There we can show with nine. There are sometimes, yeah. But uh, <laughs> I have one left. It's about eleven. Can you do improv with uh, eleven? Yes. 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 Never do an improv show. Thank you guys 11. very much for <laughs> But yeah, you know that somebody, like, if, it's, if it doesn't go well on stage, you have some other people that kind of come in there. Again, the laziness of improv, it's great. You can just kick back and somebody's got your back. And I think, I mean, you know, I've, I've, I think trained actors feel the same way. Like, I'm going to do a scene with someone and I know that they can execute it great. Um, so that's yeah, sort and of mixed what you in with, mixed in with the acting. Like, so there's, there's the ideas that you launch uh, spontaneously, but there's also the acting of, like, really being affected by this reality you're creating and, and generally the people we play with are also, they're good writers, you know, on their feet, but they're also good actors and that's really fun too to like play moments that you just kind of came up with and all of a sudden they become real. That is the best, like if you're doing a, you're doing a really funny scene and then you do something that's like really, like the audience is like, oh my God, like oh, like a puppy moment. You, you know, you suddenly mm-hmm. become a puppy in the scene. Mm-hmm. That, they love that. But it's great, you know, when you sort of ha- have these little moments where you're like, that is our next project, Puppy Bowl, the movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Brian and I are going to be writing that. It's going to be backstage at like, you know. Backstage at the Puppy, puppy Bowl. bowl. <laughs> like the ins and outs, the drug addiction. Just oh, the insane. Oh, and they're all effing. They're yeah. all effing. Oh, boy. <laughs> Every single one of them. 
It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. You're listening to my interview with Brian Husky and Matt Walsh, recorded at our live show at the Masonic Lodge at Hollywood Forever Cemetery in L.A. I imagine that there must be something particularly about, you know, everyone's biggest fear, even performers, I think, is like getting up in front of people. Mm -hmm. And to do that without, specifically without preparation is, I mean, not that you don't, prepare to become a great improviser, but to not have material that you can rely on. And and to do that and know that you might be able to succeed at it, mm-hmm. like to step out into that abyss and know that you might be able to catch yourself in the air or that someone uh, that you're working with might will catch you, that must be thrilling. Yeah. Well, I, I'm the, the, I feel safer doing improv than... Having scripted material, like if I, when I've done shows, you know, even stuff I've written, like knowing that there's a body of of, of words that I have to execute, the audience doesn't necessarily know that I'm messing up a line here and there, but that would be very terrifying to me. But if it's put in my own hands, like, oh yeah, I can, I'll make this up. This will be fine. Yeah, there's a lot of freedom in that because in improv, you incorporate the mistakes and they become part of the scene. So there's no standard or script that you're chasing. So it's tremendous freedom to do that. But by the same token, anybody who's good at their job, like you're an interviewer, you could plop in someone that you found interesting and I'm sure you could do a good interview or a good plumber could just look at a job and say, well, we got to probably do this. So, uh, so we're like plumbers. Plum comedy. We're plumbers. Yeah. But you know what I mean? Like, I don't know after doing it for so long, it's like pick up basketball games. You do it to stay sharp, and you do it to play with people that are funny or funnier than you. What's the most exciting moment you've had on stage improvising? Oh, my God. Me and Obama were... Uh, Obama and I. She and I. <laughs> uh, most exciting moment in an improv show. Well, corny ones that are sweet. We've had proposals, which yeah. are always nice. You know, somebody like... Oh, we need an audience member to come up. Okay, we're going to ask you a question. Then, lo and behold, somebody comes on stage with them and they propose. Honestly, for me, it was when I first started performing with these guys. Like, because I was a student and I would watch them and I'd learn from them. And then I got invited to do, uh, there's a show called Ask Cat. Got invited to do that. And when I would do a scene with, with Matt or Amy Poehler, these people, it was huge it was like you know it was the thing i've always wanted and if i made them laugh that's that was even better but i, I never did so <laughs> <laughs> you've made me laugh since then but not that night no not that night. <laughs> i was very disappointed I, I do remember it wasn't a it was a show with improv but it was a show in central park that uh besser and i did and Matt Besser, Matt Besser, founders of the and Brigade. part of the show was introducing this act that we claim is really good, but then when we come on stage, we're completely terrible. So part of the bit was we had uh, my father came out as J.D. Salinger when he was alive <laughs> to an audience of 2,000 people in Central Park and says, hi, I'm J.D. Salinger. Uh, I don't come out of my house for anything except for this next act. <laughs> After the show, people wanted his autograph. Wow. I'm not, he, he signed like five autographs. I'm, and he's like, I'm signing as J.D. Salinger. Go ahead. That's great. That was one of my highlights. That was, because that really, it was my dad, too. 
There's a really good fart joke one time, too. <laughs> that, was a, that was a paradigm shift. As I, was, as I was driving over here, I was thinking of this ASCAT thing. Where Okay, so you guys perform a, a long-form improv show called uh, ASCAT uh, that's anchored by you, Matt, and your colleagues and the founding members of the Upright Citizens Brigade, along with folks who've been at the theater a long time, people like Brian. And you often open uh, with uh, whichever of you is around, come out and sort of talk to the audience. And uh, you came to our, um, our like, uh, festival retreat, Max FunCon, a couple years ago, and asked this question, which I, I talked to you, and apparently this is something you once in a while check in with an audience about, that absolutely left me... In awe. Do you know? Do you remember the one that it was? Is it elephant or is yes, it? Yes, yes. Yes. So I don't know. Like I just figured we have a couple hundred people here. Yeah. It's like the perfect number so, of people. So you do you know this question? I don't. Okay, great. He's a good subject matter. Okay, good. In this room of say, what's the fire safety number for this room? We're looking two two hundred two fifty. Yeah. Two fifty. There's probably a thousand fire department. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> in this room of two fifty. How many? Don't raise your hand yet. How many people? in this room have ridden on the back of an elephant? Your guess, Brian. Yeah, your guess, honestly. 17. Okay, so 17. I'm going to say it's much higher. Raise your hands if you've been on the back of an elephant in your lifetime. Wow, kind of a lot. Okay, now everyone start counting yourself. Everyone start at one. I know, it's going to be chaos. Yeah, it's like 20% of the room, sort of. No. Whoa. And Max One, Funcon, it was like four. Two, three, was it? four, five, yeah. six, seventeen on the nose. <laughs> <laughs> it's more than seventeen. I guarantee you it's more than seventeen. Fully on an elephant? You've ridden an elephant? Yeah, I've been on the back of an elephant. Not That's just like made those... fun of it and sort of given it a hard time, like ridden on an elephant. <laughs> but usually people guess zero or one. You know, because, but it's a very common experience for people to go to a fair and they pay five bucks and they'll put you on the back of an elephant or... I feel like <laughs> those <laughs> elephant people, like, that's just people, that's not, like, podcast comedy. That's people that heard the promo on KPCC. Yeah, this is... A, this <laughs> is a, that's NPR types. Yeah, they used that lifestyle. These people have gone and spent time in India and they've, you know, yeah. they've walked along this the Great Wall. This is eat, pray, love type situation. <laughs> I would venture half of them did it in the U.S. That's my guess. Raise, raise your hand if you were on that elephant in America. So okay. About half. Raise, your, raise your hand if you've See? been to Mel's Discounted Elephant Farm. <laughs> and ran oh, and they were close. They, they, were, they were abusing the animals. Is that they my wife? Teresa, is that you back there? Did you raise your hand? At Marine World? Yeah. I didn't know that. What? Who did? <laughs> For 17 years, and I just found out my wife's ridden an elephant. <laughs> this is good for your marriage. This is great. Yeah. You gotta life. keep things spicy. <laughs> Get you on an elephant, maybe, sir. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, start easy and we'll come to it. <laughs> <laughs> Just let you pet an elephant first. We're going to systematic desensitization. Slowly, yeah. we'll get you Got it. onto the elephant. First, a little petting, then heavy petting. Yeah. Petting, <laughs> heavy petting. 
Let the elephant paint your picture first. Right. They can do that. <laughs> then he's going to stand on you. <laughs> He'll stampede you a little bit. But then it's not just that. So elephant, there was two choices at Max von Kahn. Elephant lost. There were fewer people. Yeah. There's one other choice. There is one other choice. Have you ever choked a dolphin? <laughs> <laughs> is that the other one? That was a chapter in Eat, Pray, Love. <laughs> it's Gilbert right before Bali. There's yeah. just a part where she just chokes out an elephant. <laughs> chokes out a dolphin. So I've never list. felt so alive in my life. And as he took his last breath, I looked in the dolphin's eye and I knew why I was there. <laughs> Liz Gilbert's a cool lady. If she was here, she would enjoy that. I just want you guys to know that. I'm not making fun of that. Uh, she's cool. Wait, so there's yeah. another another choice. Well, I was gonna say side note to that. I happen to know her first husband. Really? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> He's a very nice man, but it's it's not gossipy. The funniest part of it is, is like whatever he was 10 years out of the marriage with her or something and he's walking on a plane and everybody's reading oh that <laughs> Dude, I mean, it's funny it's like oh my god it just exploded everywhere Jeez. and he's like getting on a plane he's like oh my god yeah she but he's told, not poor, he's she not told me that her way. her new her current husband asked her like is it okay that you're like writing about our lives this way and her answer was nobody's gonna read this <laughs> Like, whoops oh jeez well Matt Brian thank you so much for taking thank the time you. to come here thank I want to mention yes Matt is in wardrobe for Veep right now he literally came from Veep we're working well we're working right next door at Paramount so I literally just went around the block he came, came from out. Veep and he's going back to Veep going now he's still work. wearing Should've his Veep the, microphone he's got a wire on the back Brian Husky and Matt Walsh thank you thanks Jesse Matt Walsh co-wrote and directs, and Brian Husky co-wrote and stars in the new film A Better You, which is available now on VOD. After a break, we've got comedy from Baron Vaughn, and I'll sit down with William H. Macy. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Bleecker Street, presenting Trumbo. Who was Dalton Trumbo? To some, he was the Academy Award-winning writer who authored the novel Johnny Got His Gun and the screenplays for Roman Holiday and Spartacus. To others, he was a dangerous subversive who was blacklisted by Hollywood for his political beliefs. Starring Brian Cranston as Dalton Trumbo, Louis C.K., L. Fanning, John Goodman, Diane Lane, and Helen Mirren. Written by John McNamara, directed by Jay Roach. Trumbo, now playing in select cities, everywhere Thanksgiving. Hidden Brain is the new NPR podcast about social science you can apply every day. Things like how backup plans actually make us less motivated and the science of fear. Find the Hidden Brain podcast with NPR's Shankar Vedantam at npr.org slash podcasts and on the NPR One app. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. We're heading back to our live show taped at the Masonic Lodge at Hollywood Forever Cemetery. And it's time for some stand-up from a comedian who's been featured on Conan, Jimmy Fallon, and on Comedy Central. You can see him right now on the Netflix original series Grace and Frankie as Bud. This is Baron Vaughn. 
So how are you? I heard some goods, but I also heard some woo, which is good, because I was in the back and I was like, I bet this audience is woo. I will ask. Every now and then you get ow, and that's just woo backwards. So, I'm in an interesting place in my life, in a good place, you know, I'm 34, sure, it's nice to beat Jesus by a year, but I'm in a weird place. I don't know where you guys are in your lives right now, but I was having a conversation with an insect the other night. That's how you know you're in a strange place because you're talking to bugs. And when I was in my 20s, you know, the conversation was different. If I saw an insect, it was like, <gasps> Jeremiah the Cockroach, you know, like an old enemy returned. But now in my 30s, if I see an insect, it's like, mm, you can stay because I have no more energy. I have no more energy. So I know now you actually need insects on your side in life, especially if you want to make it through the night. Because when I moved into my apartment, there were nine spiders. I counted. I was like, what, 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 what? That's ten too many spiders. And I killed them. Killed all of them. Felt great about it for like a week. Because that's when I found out that the crickets had been waiting for that moment. And at first I was mad until I realized that I was their Abraham Lincoln and this had been their emancipation. Like, that's not actually noise, it's gospel music, because it was Juneteenth. As crickets came in the corners I'd never even seen before. Just going, sweet freedom, the eight-legged masters have been vanquished. How do we praise our savior? I've got an idea, boys. How about we put on a concert? At noon, like a normal time? No, But he'll never sleep. That's how he'll know we love him. Let's start. And the one, and the two, and the... It's two reasons. Number one, they match my carpet and I cannot see them. Number two... <laughs> number two, I don't appreciate the music, but I respect the dream. <laughs> Cricket wants to be somebody. That's why it's hard to crush it. It's hard to crush an insect that tries to do something, tries to participate. Cricket can't do it. A firefly? Could you smash a firefly? No. Their tails are powered by the dreams of the innocent. And uh, a bee? You have never seen a bee that is not stressed out. Every time you've seen a bee, you have been that bee. It's in the middle of a double shift. And it's behind on pollination. It's behind on making honey. And that's why when it comes across you, it doesn't have time for your BS. They kind of levitate in your face like they're trying to get around you to crowd it more. That's what a bee is doing. Excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, move! Is. But a wasp can go to hell because they don't do anything. There's no pollination, no honey, but they still have stingers. Oh no. A wasp is unemployed with a weapon. I have really weird allergies. I'm allergic to dairy. Uh, and I mean, I'm allergic to dairy, not lactose intolerant. Not like, oh, I had pizza, now I fart. But, uh, <laughs> I was in the emergency room four months ago because I accidentally had butter. <laughs> and then my throat swelled up to the point I could not breathe, which is really scary because you're also dizzy. It's called anaphylactic shock. And now I gotta have an EpiPen in my pocket because nobody knows what 
Dairy is. No restaurant, no server seems to understand. I can't have dairy, not because I'm cute, but because it might kill me. Ooh, what about eggs? Eggs are not dairy. But it's from a farm. Dairy's from a cow. Ooh, what about asparagus? That's a vegetable. Ooh, what about arsenic? That's literally a poison. Ooh, what about arsenic and old lace? That's a play. Ooh, what about the crucible? Different play. Ooh, what about Man Ray? That's an artist. Ooh, what about Rayman Zero? He's from the doors. Like, nobody knows. Nobody knows. Also, I'm allergic to pollen. <laughs> so allergic to pollen that I'm actually allergic to weed. In California in 2015, when you can get legal marijuana faster than it takes to remember marijuana means weed. So if I want to get high, guess what I have to do? Take a Benadryl. Oh my goodness. myself a few bennies if I want to hang out with the Jets. You guys know what I'm talking about. <laughs> you read it in the magazine. <laughs> so anyway, yeah. Dairy and pollen. Eating and breathing have become incredibly dangerous. I actually started calling my allergies my police because they might kill me in a way where most people would be like, well, why are you outside that day? Like, outside. Because <laughs> about if you feel awkward about race, that's how I woke up every day. <laughs> Whoa, black again. Hope I make it. Skin curly. Speaking of which, I just got back from the South, which is great because I've been meaning to run more. And um, <laughs> in a historic town called Wilmington, North Carolina, beautiful city. Ugly history. <laughs> Google the Wilmington insurrection. Guess what? It's not good. They use the word insurrection. <laughs> Interesting town, you know, big uh, port during slavery. And I know for a fact that my specific ancestors started their journey in North America in that city. And it was a very sobering experience as a black man to go to the building. I know my people were sold and just look at it and just... Now it's a subway sandwich shop. Like, is that progress? <laughs> Really messed up underground railroad reference. <laughs> and you think that if your city's where slavery started, you wouldn't call the major store in the middle of it the cotton exchange. But they call it that, making me walk by going, I'm not sure that was an exchange, actually. Uh, but I'm entitled to a 100% discount at this store, yes. I'll take all these items. Should I not pay, you ask? <laughs> me. We Thank you very much, everybody. Good night. Baron Vaughn. You can see him on the Netflix original series Grace and Frankie and find his live dates at baronvaughn.com. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. We're listening to a show taped on stage at the Masonic Lodge at Hollywood Forever Cemetery in Los Angeles. My next interview guest is an Oscar-nominated actor who recently got into the movie directing game with the films Rudderless and The Layover. He currently stars in the Showtime series Shameless, which is coming up on its sixth season this January. Before my conversation with William H. Macy, let's hear a clip from Shameless. Macy's character, Frank Gallagher, is an alcoholic dad of six kids. He's wild, he's reprehensible, and he's also a bit of a lover. 
deep inside. In this scene, he's fallen for a young doctor he's met. He looks for some advice from his friends at the bar. Just that doctor from the other day? Maybe. What's the scam? What kind of a man do you think I am? There's always a scam, Frank. All right, yes, I'm very good at sticking it to the man, but this woman, I don't want to stick anything to her. Except myself, she won't let me. Why would anybody want to be with you? Well, why wouldn't they? Chlamydia and herpes for starts. Poor hygiene, alcoholism, lack of a moral compass. Oh, fine. But my good qualities vastly outweigh my bad ones. Name one. How about a, a lust for adventure, a bottomless libido? Jesus. I show up with drugs, companionship, pro bono sex. What more could a dying woman want? This is for real? How the hell should I know? Make it like the world stops spinning when you look at her. I tried that. It didn't work. What else you got? Well, thanks, people. You were a big help. Please welcome William H. Macy. Welcome to the show. It's really nice to get to talk to you. It's good to be here. Um, when I was watching Shameless, I was wondering to what extent you were interested in the part because it reflected something in you and to what extent you were interested in the part because it was a chance to play with something that wasn't natural to you. Um... I think it was the show. Uh, ever since I got in this business, I thought, uh, do the good stuff and don't do the bad stuff. And it, I've always thought it would do me a lot better to take a smaller role in a successful film than the lead in something that stinks. And uh, uh, it was a great show. It's a British import, not unlike... Veep, and it's the American version of it, and it's kind of stunning. Uh, okay, and then after that, what a great character. I mean, he's, he's shameless. Just, <laughs> anything goes. He's the titular character in the show. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one of, the things that, one of the things about the show is that you have this character who, um, you know, as the show has gone on, this has changed to some extent as he's you know, had a liver failure and so on and so stopped drinking as much and that kind of thing, but, like, is so on the make at all times and so amoral. Like, those things that we, those descriptors that we heard in that clip describe the character, and so you have this challenge as an actor, which is you have to kind of construct the framework within yourself for this kind of insane amorality. Uh, that's, that's well put. Um, um, interestingly, in this season, uh, I did four seasons of Shameless where my character was loaded in almost every single scene, either getting over something or getting or hungover or getting high or it, there was all, always that um, haze through which everything he did happened. And then uh, the character's liver stopped. So I spent a whole season 
in bed. That was a laugh riot, boy, that was. <laughs> and finally, we went to the Emmys, right? So I'm dying of uh, liver failure, and they give me an Emmy nomination for comedy. <laughs> Oh, it's so funny, too. When I take off my shirt, I have all these scars all over me because when I went to get a liver, uh, none of my family would lift a finger to save me, and uh, I found a daughter, an illegitimate daughter, who um, at the 11th hour, I was near death. I went on this diet. Oh, man, I looked bad. It was pretty scary to see me. And uh, she found a, 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 a black market liver, so she hired this Pakistani doctor and scraped together the money and uh, the guy in a warehouse put a new liver in me, and then they call the paramedics who says, wait, he had a liver transplant? No, nope, he's still got his liver, but he's missing a kidney. <laughs> so this guy stole my kidney, and then through the machinations of the plot, I end up getting a liver. And my point, wait, don't tell me, <laughs> is when I take off my shirt, I'm covered with all these scars. I've been shot twice, and I've got these great scars that they put on. That's a segue. I just think they're sexy. <laughs> my point is this. For four years, I was inebriated, and then I went back for that season, and my character wasn't drinking. And as an actor, I got to tell you, it was... It was... Um, shocking. Because I had... Uh, Frank Gallagher had this way of speaking, you know, it was expansive, it was sort of, um, he was always loaded, and then all of a sudden he wasn't loaded, so the plots were the same, he was a, a scammer, and, um, but he was sober, and I, I, in a weird way, I didn't know how to act it without going into the weird, uh, loaded voice, and it wasn't appropriate anymore. It was fascinating to be thrown back on looking at the character in a brand new way after four years on this show. Well, it seems like there's two parts of playing drunk. One is a technical part, which is, can I have the physicality of a drunk person, have the speech pattern, you know, slur my words, whatever it is, hyper-enunciate, whatever choice you make as a how. And then... It seems like the, the kind of like the acting part, the emotional part is making the kinds of choices that someone who is drunk would make mm -hmm. emotionally, right? That seems like that would be, that seems very difficult. Like the first thing seems to me like something like you could just practice. Yeah, and it's you a could parlor get it. trick. It's, uh, it's just a gag you do. It's not acting. And in fact, your point is well taken. I, I, in the first couple of seasons of this thing, I'd walk away thinking, man, I just did a great drunk but I forgot to act the scene. <laughs> Happened a couple of times. But it must be hard to make those... I mean, to, to my mind, there is, there's like a real challenge in making the choices in that context. Like, the choices that you make, plus it's, there's this other thing going on. You know, the lack of inhibitions, yeah. the, you know, all those things. Yeah. It, the writers take care of a lot of it, but... Um, it's been a caution doing this thing. I'm a Lutheran kid from Western Maryland, and I read these scripts, and I think, Mother of God, what are you talking about? I'm not... The stuff they have my character do. Today, today, I, I had two scenes. I bed down these two women. They're my age, and, and they're 
large, and um, it was, it's a weird-ass way to make a living. What was the question? What size and age women have you betted recently? You You really nailed it, too. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to the actor William H. Macy. Shameless, his show, returns for its sixth season in January. Our interview was taped before a live audience at the Masonic Lodge at Hollywood Forever Cemetery in Los Angeles. Is it hard for you in... uh, Are the things that he is good at, the things that Frank is good at, um, that kind of grand self-presentation, self-justification, scheming, uh, and just sort of joie de vivre, too, Mm -hmm. are those things that are parts of your life? Like, are those normal for you, or is that something that you have to stretch to get into? No, I think that's... I've made a whole career out of taking a hapless character who's in over his head and making that journey compelling. I mean, it's Fargo is the best example. I mean, what a loser. But this is what I know. It's compelling to see someone striving. Uh, You can't take your eyes off of it. So um, uh, Frank never gives up. And um, it's compelling when people have a sense of humor about it. It's compelling when people are a little bit self-knowledgeable. They realize what fools they are. Uh, But mostly to keep striving. It's, It's hard to take your eyes off of someone who's got an objective, a good, strong goal. I want to ask you about uh, working with David Mamet, who you've worked with on and off through your entire career, essentially. Um, uh, when, did, when did the two of you meet? In college. I went to this hippie college in Vermont called Goddard College. And uh, Dave had graduated from there, and he came back as a teaching fellow, and he started teaching classes. And when I say hippie college, the only requirement was tuition. <laughs> <laughs> After that, you could make it all up. And so Dave started this acting class, and uh, he had gone to the neighborhood playhouse, and he was my mentor. He, st- he taught me everything I know. What did you think of him when you, f- when you first met him? Well, for a hippie college, he said some outrageous stuff right at the top. He said we had to be on time. <laughs> <laughs> and he, like all of us, wore military clothes. We all did. It was Vietnam era. But his were pressed, and his were tailored, and he looked really sharp. The rest of us looked like bums. Uh, And um, I'd never seen anyone who loved the theater like he did, and he's the first guy that ever said um, um, an actor's job is to tell the truth, and that um, traditionally the theater is one of the places you go to hear the truth. And um, um, he said it was a noble profession, and he, he changed my life. Not that long ago, Chukotel Ejiofor was on the show. He was in, the, he was in this um, jujitsu movie that David Mamet made. Yeah. He had read David Mamet's book about acting, which I've read, and I can't even begin to recommend enough. This is True and False? Yes. Uh-huh. Uh, this is the mo- one of the most delightful books I've ever read, if only for its sheer chutzpah. Um, <laughs> but like, basically, as I remember it, and I read it 10 years, 20, 12 years ago, I don't know. But as I remember it, it was like basically like, yeah, actors should speak loudly enough that the audience can hear them and make sure to remember 
the lines that the playwright wrote. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that was like his advice to actors. <laughs> so like I can only imagine what he was, what he's like as a director. It must be a, it must be a like a, I don't know, like stepping into a phenomenon, you know. He's got a point. Let's face facts. <laughs> um, it's uh, it's the the writer does most of the work. I mean, you were just talking about improv, but um, I come from the a different school, which is uh, make it look like improv, but say the words, and um, it's an interesting thing. It really is, because we're in a golden age of television, and television had sort of a tawdry reputation for many, many years. And I think in television, um, a lot of people would uh, learn the lines, sort of, and ad-lib them. They would make them their own. But now... Simply the because there were so many... There's, you know, there's a, you're essentially learning a new play every week in television because you're making a new no, show. No, because every they week. sucked. Okay. They were just bad lines. They were, it, television was trying not to good. be nice to yeah. Telly Savalas. No, there was, you know, it wasn't scintillating. It wasn't right. good writing. But now, the best writers are writing on television. There's not enough hours in the day to watch everything that's worthwhile on television. And my attitude is, if you want to be a writer, be a writer. But if you're an actor, say the writer's words, because the writer's words are a hell of a lot better than your ad-libs. Well, there's a certain, I mean, there's a certain kind of, uh, I want to say, like, modesty that is demanded of an actor performing Mamet because the language is carrying so much weight. Mm -hmm. Um and that is, you know, that style is, I mean, it's very different from the style of, you know, aesthetically, it's very different, for example, from the style of Shameless. Mm -hmm. And I think for a long time, your style was very modest and economical. Mm -hmm. um, and Shameless is kind of grand. And those are two very different things. Yes, but even Dave... Uh I, I saw this one time. It was lovely. A big actor came up to Dave and said, um, uh, this speech here, I'm not sure this, uh, wh what does this mean? I'm not sure what, it, wh what I'm saying here. And Dave said, oh, those are just the words. What you're doing, and he gave him the objective, and that's Dave's point of view, and he's correct, and it's true in any of his things. It's true always. You can't act the words. Those are just the words. Um, what you got to act is what you want, the objective. And um, I've seen a lot of actors, they say, why would I say that? And I always say, that's the wrong question. You do say that. Look at the script. There it is. That's what you say. So start there. Uh, I think you're just opening yourself up if you want to rewrite everything that you do. If it was good enough to say yes to it, then... Learn the freaking words and say them. Say them well. Um, you want to hear a great story? I got on the no, short no, list. No, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Next question. <laughs> I got on the short list in New York to direct on the waterfront. And uh, I directed a bunch of plays in New York, but boy, this would have been a step up. And part of it was I would have to talk to Bud Schulberg, who wrote it. And so they sent this me the script. When, uh, where, where in your career are you at this point? This would be the early 80s, or mid to early 80s. And I got this script and my heart sank because I didn't like 
the script. The it was old writing. It was expositional, nineteen sort of fifties, sixties. You can't talk to me that way. Do you know who I am? Why I run the waterfront? As you well know, my sister is an albino who you've been dating for two years, and uh, you know it's just all this exposition. It wasn't good writing. I didn't. I, but forgive me. At any rate, uh, I read the script and I thought, you know what I'll do? I'm going to rent the movie and I'm going to transcribe some of the dialogue from the movie, and then when I do my interview, I will gently suggest that we combine that script with the stage script. So I rented the movie, and the dialogue was identical. <laughs> when Lee Jacobs said it, he didn't listen to the words. They're just the words. All you knew is that he was kicking ass. Was when- Lee Jacobs in that? <laughs> I'm 34 years old. <laughs> he wasn't that. Ask me about Saved by the Bell. That's my real <laughs> Marlon Brando, Eva Marie yeah. Saint. Yeah, okay. Sure, Marlon Brando from the Transformers yeah. movie. Yeah, you yeah. <laughs> I'll finish my conversation with William H. Macy after a break. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for Bullseye and this message comes from Rhino Entertainment with greatest hits by Tracy Chapman, the first ever U.S. compilation from the acclaimed Grammy-winning artist featuring remastered songs compiled by Tracy, including Fast Car, Give Me One Reason, Talking About a Revolution, and brand new track, Stand By Me, recorded live at The Late Show with David Letterman. Available now. Hidden Brain is the new NPR podcast about social science you can apply every day. Things like how backup plans actually make us less motivated and the science of fear. Find the Hidden Brain podcast with NPR's Shankar Vedantam at npr.org slash podcasts and on the NPR One app. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. We're hearing an interview with William H. Macy taped in front of an audience at the Masonic Lodge at Hollywood Forever Cemetery in Los Angeles. At what point in your career did you feel like you were a real professional actor? Like that you weren't just going to have to go wait tables for the rest of your life at some point? It's... It was late. (laughs) It's really hard for an actor to say, okay, I've got a career. That's a scary thing to admit to yourself. Tweet, tweet. I'm still not going to say it right now because it could fall apart at any minute. Um, I've been doing it for a long time. Uh, I don't know. At a certain point, uh, other things take over. You get married. You have children. You get some perspective. It's just the way you, you earn a living. But, boy, it's a glorious way to earn a living. Um, my wife is an actor. My kids love it. It's quite a household we have. Would you encourage your children to become professional actors? I don't know how old they are, but... Yeah, in a New York minute. I love nepotism. I got no problem. With that. <laughs> I mean, they got the right genes, right? Yeah, yep. And I, I don't want to fly commercial anymore, so I want them to get successful really quickly. <laughs> so you want them to be more successful than you, like now? Yeah. <laughs> I, you know what? I believe in them. Yeah. 
the young people are our future. <laughs> yep. Um, what have you learned from, you, as you mentioned, your wife, Lissy Huffman, is a really gifted actor as well. Um, and the two of you have worked together before um, on a variety of things. What have you learned from her work? What a great question. Um, some tricks. There's a bunch of tricks in acting. It's all an illusion, you know. I, um, I think I used to teach acting a whole lot. And then one day, after 20 years of saying all this trash, I started to hear my own voice and I never taught again. I walked away from it. Uh, God willing, I never hurt anybody, but mostly the actors who came in to my classes who were good left good, and those who couldn't act left not knowing how to act. Um, it's hard to teach this, but there are tricks. And um, if you're doing a play and you have one moment in the evening, you earned your money. One moment, just one moment in an hour and a half on stage. That's a good night. And there's no shame if you don't have a moment. And if you're doing a scene and you have a moment in television with the pace of television or even a big fat feature, if you have a moment in the scene, that's really a, a red letter day. The rest of it is, it's kind of illusion. You know, you tell everyone I'm the king and I'm sitting on a throne and I'm talking to my peeps. You have no reason to doubt it unless I give you a reason to doubt it. It's a lot of it is done for us. And I think over the, you asked me what Felicity had taught me on getting to it. But over the years, it's to um, try to uh, weed out the in my technique. And I do believe in technique. Um, she's got some great gags that she does. I'm, I'm pausing because she'll kill me for giving them away. But, uh, well, okay, here's one. She's so emotionally available to herself. Uh, I mean, she can turn it on like that. And I always wondered how she does it. And then one day she said, don't eat and don't sleep the night before. If you're hungry and tired, you can cry at the drop of a hat. <laughs> you should try it. It works. If you're tired and you're hungry, you'll burst into tears. Uh, I don't care who you are. And I'm Lutheran, and even, it even works for me. <laughs> um, she taught me how to learn lines in a brand new way. One time she said, well, uh, second year of Shameless, she said, you're in your third act. And then she said a lot of other stuff, but I couldn't hear anything past I was in my third act. You because, couldn't hear anything over the din of your own mortality? Oh <laughs> third acts are really short. Um, and she said, what do you want to do on the second season of Shameless? Because it's the first time I'd ever done a TV show, and it's a lovely... I wish I'd had a show earlier, because I kind of learned how to act all over again. It got so much better. Um, you know, the, you read The Outliers? Well, I finally, at this age, got my 10,000 hours in. I get to act every day. She said, what do you want to work on? And um, It's a trite answer, but uh, every acting class you'll ever take will begin with you got to really look and you got to really listen. And I've gotten very good over the years at pretending to really look and really listen. You can't tell the difference. It's flawless. So I thought, what the hell? They're not going to fire me. I'm going to really look and really listen, see what happens. And it was transformative. Is that kind of emotional availability above and beyond, uh, you know, tricks of the trade? 
something that you've learned from her in, in your relationship with her? Um, in acting or just in real life? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we started this thing where she likes to talk. And uh, I do it, but... <laughs> Talking is, it's a slippery slope. You start talking, next thing you know, you're going to be communicating, then you're going to be feeling things. I, but I do it. I mean, you sort of do it. You sort of just, just now just sort of didn't do it. <laughs> No, we actually talk. She won't put up with um, leaving things under the rug. We talk about stuff, and she's very honest and um, won't stop until we uncover the, what's at the core of what we're talking about. Um, but the best thing is she adores me, and she wants what's best for me. And um, that's a really good thing to have. You should never marry someone who doesn't feel that way about you. William H. Macy, thank you so much for talking to us. <laughs> William H. Macy. Thank the you, sixth series of Shameless is coming up in January. He's also the director of the upcoming film The Layover. It was a pleasure. Thank you, brother. You're listening to an episode of Bullseye taped live on stage at the Masonic Lodge at the Hollywood Forever Cemetery where we were lucky to be joined by a really special and amazing Los Angeles band, Chicano Batman. Their most recent record is called Cycles of Existential Rhyme. So let's head back to the live show and hear the song of the same name. Earth. 
something like this.
Chicano Batman. Their record is called Cycles of Existential Rhyme. You can find out more about the band and see their upcoming tour dates at ChicanoBatman.com. You're listening to a special episode of Bullseye, taped in front of a live audience at the Masonic Lodge at Hollywood Forever Cemetery in Los Angeles. Every week, we like to close the show with a recommendation from me, your host. It's the Outshot. Good morning, and welcome to Atlanta A&T University Marching Band Training. The next two weeks will be your introduction and possibly induction into a great marching band legacy. If you're here, it's because you believe in musicianship. If you're here, it's because you believe in Coltrane, Miles Davis, Stevie Wonder, and the elements known as earth, wind, and fire. If you are here, it is because you have a fervent, unequivocal belief in teamwork. My Uncle Wayne loves the movie Drumline. I saw it at his house once, his and my Aunt Deb's house in Arlington, Virginia. I wasn't excited about it, honestly. I mean, you know, what can I say? I thought it would be corny. But I watched it because I love my aunt and my uncle and, you know, their house, their rules. The thing is, my Uncle Wayne, he loves band. He was some kind of engineer for his job, but he loves playing down in his basement. He loves music I wouldn't listen to in a thousand years. He and my Aunt Deb went on a Dave Cause smooth jazz cruise. <laughs> which is something that I would never do because it is corny and it's literally my job to not do stuff like that. <laughs> but Wayne is just this amazing, effervescent man. Anyway. I watch Drumline in their basement, and I swear there's not one curveball in that entire movie. <laughs> it is exactly what you think it's going to be right from the start and all the way through the end. <laughs> and the truth is, I kind of loved it. <laughs> I'll tell you this about my Uncle Wayne. My Uncle Wayne is an uncle. He has always been an uncle. I mean, I guess that's my perspective, since I'm his nephew. <laughs> I'm sure my aunt and my cousins see him differently and his friends from work and, and from the service, but, but I want to be clear. When, when I say he is an uncle, I mean that in the most wonderful way possible. My Uncle Wayne loves earth, wind, and fire. He loves barbecuing. He lives in the suburbs. He loves his wife and his kids. Uncle stuff. I remember uh, building connects with him when I was a kid. I don't know if you guys remember that toy. You could make little robots. And I swear to God, he was as excited as I was. I remember how proud he was that he had one of those machines that took the shaky shaky out of dubbed VHS tapes. He's like, now we can back up our collection. <laughs> I remember the time that Wayne rescued me and my girlfriend after this car that we borrowed just stopped working on the Beltway in Washington, D.C. Just remember his Pontiac coming out of the fog. It's like, hey, guys. I remember him loving my cousins and their partners. He and my aunt always caring for them when they needed it, even when they found out that Wayne's cancer wasn't going to go away. I love my Uncle Wayne.
When he got sick, he and my Aunt Deb made a bucket list. There was a couple of go to Paris type things on it. But what I noticed about it was it was pretty much what they were doing already. I mean, he basically just wanted to be with his family and maybe together they could all go to the boardwalk in Ocean City, Maryland. Because it turns out that a lot of times the corny stuff is actually the good stuff. That's something I learned from my uncle. Especially when you're young, it's easy to think of the world in terms of what you don't like. It's easy to say you're going to take on the man and fight till the end. It's easy to be the alternative to the alternative. And all of that stuff is fine. But then at some point, you kind of start to get it. Sometimes just doing right by the people around you and enjoying their company and maybe playing drums in the basement sometime for yourself. Maybe that's actually where it's at. I love the out of my Uncle Wayne, and I'm really going to miss him. And if you've got somebody like that in your life, I, I don't know. I mean, just appreciate them. And also, take my word for it. Watch Drumline. <laughs> it's really fun, and you're really going to like it. <laughs> That's my outshot. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. The show's produced by Speaking Into Microphones. This week on stage in front of an audience at the Masonic Lodge at Hollywood Forever Cemetery. Special thanks to Emily Erskine, our media sponsor KPCC, and our sound engineer for the evening, Dusty Linga Bay. Thanks to Chase Culpin at WNYC for his engineering help. Our producers, Julia Smith, production assistant, Christian Duenas, production fellow at Maximum Fun is Ibarian X. Parello, senior producer, Colin Anderson. All our interstitial music provided by Dan Wally. Thanks to the Go Team and their label Memphis Industries for giving us our theme music. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, all of them are free. Just go to MaximumFun.org. And if you want to hear about more cool culture stuff, you can check out our sister show, Pop Rocket. It's a roundtable discussion of everything great in popular culture, hosted by comedian Guy Branham. This week, the gang's talking about Aziz Ansari's new Netflix show, Master of None. Pop Rocket. Find it wherever you download podcasts. And I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. 